Drew Bakius was a fervent believer in evangelical Christianity. He was a minister and then, after a long process, realized he didn't believe. Now he wants to create dialogue between Christians and atheists. You know, and the hostility comes from both sides. You would, you would maybe think that, you know, other atheists talking to me, now an atheist, wouldn't be hostile. But you'd be amazed at how easily... Even other atheists can come out, you know, swinging and punching. Like, I can't believe you used to be so stupid. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) Do we need to assume that I had to be so stupid? Maybe not everyone who is even a current believer is so stupid. And so trying to kind of break down those barriers. Drew Bakius is the author of The Rise and Fall of Faith, a God to Godless story for Christians and atheists. It's time now for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network and the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schott. The world of evangelical Christianity is one that is familiar and foreign. As what was formerly called mainline Christianity, the Christianity of Reinhold Niebuhr and Martin Luther King Jr., diminishes with aging members and loss of influence. Evangelical Christianity is the face and voice of Christianity in America today. It is as familiar as politicians who use it to promote their right-wing political agendas. Those raised in it think it is Christianity and view those others who claim the label, such as old-line liberal Protestants and even Catholics, as not Christian or at least dangerously mistaken. Evangelical Christianity is also foreign. For those who were not enmeshed in its culture and belief system, its influence and message can be surprising. It is surprising when it is discovered that its reach extends high into decision-making circles of political leaders in our country, and it is surprising when polls demonstrate the sheer number of people, around 40%, who think that Jesus will return in their lifetimes, one of the fundamental beliefs of evangelicalism. Evangelical Christianity is centered on an inerrant Bible. Personal salvation through the cross of Jesus, his physical resurrection, and his imminent return. And of course, prayer. Lots of passionate prayer to a God who is believed to hear the prayers and even to answer them. Evangelical Christianity is an enticing draw to charismatic leaders. It gives them a mission and a platform, the ministry. From their pulpits, they are convinced by signs and wonders that they have been called to win the world for Christ. Drew Bakius was a true believer. He prayed the sinner's prayer when he was three and was immersed in evangelical Christianity, starting an award-winning ministry in his high school. He became a minister and a leader, and he was skilled at the job. But a few years ago, the edifice began to crack. Man, I, I honestly don't know what to do with this thing. Like, it, uh, I don't know how to explain this this finding away from a from an evangelical perspective. So for now, I'll set it to the side. I'll push it to the periphery, and we'll come back to it later. Um, and I and and I would suggest all evangelicals do that regularly. And so, of course, I did that you know, over years and years and years. And it didn't really shake my faith. You just keep pushing it to the side and we'll deal with it later. But then I came to the point in 2010, I suppose you'd say, where I can't keep pushing to the side. It now demands my attention. It challenges my faith, of course. And so I cry out to God. And the the biggest, the hardest thing that pulled and tore against my faith wasn't the critiques themselves. I had learned to deal with them over the course of my entire life. It wasn't the critiques themselves. It was the fact 
that then when I cried out to God to help me finally sort through them, he couldn't. Drew Bacchius no longer holds belief in God or Jesus or the church. He's now a humanist coach and is the president of the Clergy Project. The Clergy Project is an online community for former and active religious professionals who no longer hold supernatural beliefs. Drew Bacchius, in many ways, is still a minister at heart. He's a caring, thoughtful person who wants to help people overcome stereotypes and to understand each other, even when they might not agree. In particular, he wants atheists and Christians to talk to each other. Today we discuss his journey and his new mission that he outlines in his book, The Rise and Fall of Faith, a God-to-Godless story for Christians and atheists. Drew Bacchius is with me via Skype from Chicago. Welcome, Drew, to Progressive Spirit. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm very interested in your book, The Rise and Fall of Faith, a God-to-Godless story for Christians and atheists. And you are also the, the, uh, what is it, the chair, the president of the Clergy Project. Yes, yes. So great group and great to be a part of them and... uh, yeah, really enjoy the work they're doing there and my, my role in it. Well, let's get an update on those guys and, and you. Uh, what it, The Clergy Project is um, started about, uh, what, oh, five, six, seven years ago? Yeah, you know, it, it began as, well, exactly what it sounds like. So a project. It was a, a project that was put together, launched by, I suppose you'd say, the greater, uh, the, the larger secular community, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, Dan Dennett, Dan Barker. Uh, and then, and so that got started in 2011, March of 2011. Then along the way, uh, decisions were made to, you know, hey, branch out and kind of make this our own nonprofit. And so in 2015, uh, that was that process of becoming your own 501c3 was finalized. And now, uh, now we we have our our board. It's an all volunteer led uh, organization. And so uh, I have the joy of serving as a uh, president of the board um and we do what we can with the time we can with the time we have to to lead the organization as best as possible but it's a great group we have there and let me think they're about what are we around 400 500 um members no, we're actually we're actually starting to approach near the uh 800 mark oh wow okay so, yeah we've got about 780 uh forum participants that uh, that the project services and of course, the clergy project is for clergy who are at various stages. But the one thing they have in common is that they don't uh, have supernatural beliefs anymore. The the language of their faith uh, doesn't reflect them, and so they're kind of caught in a spot in some respects, yeah. uh, as you were. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, everyone in the project, all one requirement to. Uh, gain access to the forum, which is the clergy project's kind of flagship service, is this kind of secret, almost underground style uh, online platform, online community. Uh, and in order to gain entryway uh, into that uh, that online forum, have to one uh, have been either have been or currently be. Uh, a religious professional of really any religious uh, background uh, could be a Muslim imam in the Middle East, uh, could be a Buddhist or Hindu monk, a Catholic priest, you know, a Protestant uh, minister of various forms. Uh, so that's the one requirement. And then the other one being uh, that you have now come to a point where you no longer hold the supernatural belief, no longer believe in all the God stuff. Uh, and you might not necessarily embrace the term atheist. Certainly a number of ours of ours don't. That's one common misconception that you have to be this, you know, hardened atheist. <laughs> but no, you can be agnostic, whatever it is, but but you've stepped away from a personal belief in supernaturalism. And uh, we have, like you said, a variety of participants within that spectrum of how they identify themselves and certainly whether or not they're closeted uh, and still active in ministry, uh, but in a closeted way. Others, a few, uh, active in ministry, but not at all closeted. Uh, I think, if I understand correctly, you might 
fall into that uh, uh, that's category. me yes uh, yeah up, i'm a right? member of the clergy project uh out, out of the closet uh it happened to be in a very liberal setting so you know yeah. i can be uh, a christian atheist minister which is marvelously jarring i think for folks but <laughs> I uh love it. i love it but tell me about your story if you don't mind uh you're obviously the the president so you're out of the closet uh when did you become yeah. uh, uh involved with the clergy project yourself Absolutely. So it was actually in 2014. So the, I was by no means one of the uh, charter participants or anything like that. I uh, And also, I was already uh, a fair bit uh, of the way beyond ministry at that point uh, in that it had been a couple years. So my transition out of faith, my transition out of ministry was a completely isolated experience and not an easy one, honestly. But um. Uh, but so that was done in 2012. And then in 2014, uh, I had met up with a buddy of mine, a guy named Scott, guy from, uh, my Bible college days. Um, uh, not sure if he'd necessarily consider himself an atheist or what exactly the nature of his belief or lack thereof is, but, uh, uh, definitely on the more progressive, uh, spectrum. And so he was coming in, uh, going to be in town here in Chicago and so we decided to meet up one day for grab grab a, a brew, a tasty little beer, or whatnot, uh, after my shift at the steakhouse, which is uh, where my sort of post pastoral uh, career started off. And so we met up, we grabbed a beer one night, and he started telling me about this group that he was a part of on Facebook. Now this was not the clergy project; it was something else, but it was a group all uh, uh, of they called themselves they identified as heretics. Uh, from the Moody Bible Institute. And so there was this private Facebook group uh, called the Moody Bible Institute Heretics. And some were atheists, some were not. Most of them were not atheists, just more progressive Christians. A couple of them had converted uh, in their post-Christian days to Islam, actually, or Buddhism, or whatever it may be. And so he was telling me about this group, and he said, you know what, you need to join this, because I had told him about my story and he, he thought that sounded kind of cool. And he's like, yes, you definitely need to join this group. And so he pulled out his phone and he, he uh, added me to the, the, to the Facebook group just like that. And suddenly, all of a sudden, I was a Moody Bible Institute heretic right there on the spot. <laughs> and so that was kind of the intro point. I mean, for one thing, that just it, it, did this, it had this incredible effect in that all of a sudden, just by joining a, what may in some ways just seem a silly little Facebook group, but all of a sudden I was connected. And as I mentioned a moment ago, you know, my, my experience transitioning out of faith, transitioning out of the pastoral career was done completely in isolation. I did not know a single person uh, who had had a journey like mine or was experiencing anything like it. Uh, at that point, I had not yet read, even up to the point of my talk with Scott, which was in December of 2013, you know, I left the faith, left the ministry in 2012. That whole time, I had not even read so much as a single atheist book by an athe by by an actual atheist up to that point. And so, all of a sudden, I'm connected with this community that was something more. It was those who are at least kind of like me. And uh, then you fast forward a couple months into my experience with that group, and someone else then sends me a private message from that Facebook group, and she says, "Hey." I've been reading some of your posts and stuff, and I, I see that you're a former pastor who's also an atheist. And she says, well, I'm a Presbyterian pastor currently, and I'm an atheist too, and nobody knows it. I'm closeted. But she said, I'm, I'm part of this other group called the Clergy Project. And she said, you really need to check this thing out. She mentioned a bit about it, and I said, yeah, I will, I will. And I was busy, and I moved on. I forgot about it for a few weeks, and then and then I stumbled back across a her, her text. And I said, well, man, I got to check this out. And, uh, and so I went to clergyproject.org and uh, read all about it. And I'm like, oh my word, this is exactly what I need. And so I applied that day, entered into the screening application process. We try and make sure, and even back then as well, they try and make sure that, that the process goes pretty quick, as quick as possible. And by the end of the week, I was, I was in the project and uh, had access to the online forum and it just blew my mind. Uh, all these hundreds of others who had gone through a process just like me. And that's really 
I suppose what the most powerful part was, was just knowing you're not alone and, uh, and being able to draw from the stories of all these others. Yeah. Pretty Dan- great stuff. Daniel Dennett was saying, uh, it, being an atheist clergy in the closet is kind of like being gay in the 1950s. Uh, and, and nobody, yeah. you know, it's so yeah. isolating. Nobody thinks anybody else exists and they don't know how to connect with them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a common analogy that I've heard many times and uh, it's spot on. The Rise and Fall of Faith, a God to Godless story for Christians and atheists. Do you see a need to to bridge a gap here? Yes, and that's actually actually exactly what we're trying to do, is to bring Christians, and more specifically evangelical Christians and atheists, kind of together into conversation. But we'd like to believe that within that specific conversation, we can also create a broader one that includes really those of any religious variety and any skeptical variety. But bringing people together, trying to break down some of the assumptions that each group holds about the other uh, and bring one another into greater conversation, just honest, open, caring conversation that maybe tries to extend the benefit of the doubt, tries to not automatically run towards assuming the worst (laughs) in everyone else that's a little bit different than ourselves and just create conversation, dialogue, and then move forward from there. So have you had any of these uh, dialogues? Has this been in practice, or or, or is this book um, kind of looking ahead to hopefully that happening? Well, I mean, it's both. So I've definitely had conversations really all the way back from well, – I started blogging about my experience just a lot. I've never been uh, – I want to be careful I don't overstate the extent to which I'm a blogger. <laughs> but uh, But I started blogging here and there about my experience back in, uh, let's see, early 2013 – somewhere in there. And, uh, and from the very beginning, started receiving contacts, one, from other atheists, uh, and also, though, from Christians, some of them really devout, evangelical or even fundamentalist Christians. And so really had the opportunity to try and really kind of break down what can oftentimes be almost a hostility, uh, you know, and the hostility comes from both sides. You would you would maybe think that, you know, other atheists talking to me now an atheist wouldn't be hostile. But you'd be amazed at how easily even other atheists can come out, you know, swinging and punching like, I can't believe you used to be so stupid. <laughs> well, hold hmm. on. <laughs> Do we need to assume that I had to be so stupid? Maybe not everyone who is even a current believer is so stupid. And so trying to kind of break down those barriers. Uh, but also then, yes, as you said, looking forward to the future and trying to create structures and, and uh, you know, just different ways of enhancing and, uh, and upbuilding uh, that greater dialogue, both with myself, but also beyond myself uh, to those, those around us in the world in general. Because each chapter uh, you finish with a uh, questions for discussion, uh, questions for the general audience, as well as que- questions for Christians, and then questions for uh, skeptic atheists. Obviously, anybody can address any one, but you're really looking at the different perspectives of um, of the situation. For example, even in the first chapter, you talk about a couple of prayers uh, that kind of got you going. Uh, the gym kitchen yeah. prayer, uh, where you pray, um, you know, you had to, Hey, God do this and, and this will happen. And, and then as the well as the prayer for, uh, for the girlfriend, uh, can you talk <laughs> a little bit about those, uh, those prayers and, and what you meant, what you mean in that, uh, in that setting and what you were going through in your life at that time? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, really what you find in these prayers and there were three of them specifically and, they were all in kind of the early stages of the development of my faith. You know, the first one when I was in the sixth grade and then, you know, the summer leading into my ninth grade year. And then again in my 10th grade year. And for each of them, they each played sort of this, this major big role in kind of how I understood God and faith and the nature of, I guess we'd say that relationship. Um, with the first one, you know, it was uh, it was a matter of you know I was going through this 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 crisis, em- emotional crisis, I suppose you could say, and so I cry out to God in prayer, uh, 
as a sixth grade kid, God help me. God, I don't know who to turn to. God, what do I do here? I don't even know. If, I don't know if anyone can. So far, no one's been able to help me. And God, I don't even know if you can, honestly. But if anyone or anything can, you're the only option left. And there was, when I prayed this prayer, just this immediate, like, light switch flip uh, of, of feeling from within. And it was just like this, just this rapturous emotional shift. Uh, and at least from my perspective at the time, I mean, really what I just, I knew that God had responded and that everything was going to be different from that point forward. And there was, and for the years ahead, there was just this emotional shift in what I felt. And so that's the first one. And then, yeah, the, the girlfriend prayer, you know, it, it was just sort of this, this fun prayer, you know, I'm standing in the the hallway at school and I see this girl and I'm like, well, I had had some girlfriend or girl, not girlfriend, just girl troubles at the time. Nobody seemed of interest in me or anything like that. And I said, you know, at that point I had already started doing all my, my high school ministry and had started this high school, uh, nonprofit ministry initiative thing. And, you know, was actively preaching and doing these things. And I said to God, you know, I, God, just a fun little prayer, you know, I don't know, you know, but man, this girl, I've had my eye on her (laughs) since the fifth grade and, uh, boy, God, you know, she doesn't seem to be, have too active of a faith and I'm committed to only dating actively, you know, fervently Christian girls and boy, God, if you really wanted to bless me, if you could make it so that she came to real fiery, fervent faith in Jesus, just like me, so that I could start dating her and then maybe one day make her my wife. Boy, God, what a blessing that would be to have you take such an interest. And I walked away from that prayer and, uh, you know, kind of forgot all about it. It was just sort of a fun, lighthearted thing. Just toss it up to the lap of my heavenly father and uh, walked away from it, forgot all about it. And then events started happening. And lo and behold, that year she came to this fiery faith in Jesus. And uh, later that year, we started dating. She became my girlfriend. A couple years later, she became my wife. And, uh, and it's just this crazy thing. But so that when we talk about like foundational prayers, like that prayer had this incredible effect in that it taught me that in addition to God being this like strong, mysterious force that can dramatically and in an instant change your entire outlook and emotional feeling, uh, in addition to him being able to just like do all these powerful, powerful things in your life. In addition to all that, that prayer specifically told me, taught me that he also just loves to bless you and make you happy, even with silly, somewhat stupid prayers. You know, and now from a more, in my later days as a pastor, I became a more progressive, almost, you know, left-leaning pastor and really, you know, conscious of you know, just social justice and, you know, a feminist. And I considered myself a humanist, even as a Christian pastor. And, you know, from there, I would look at, man, what an ignorant prayer that was. God, make her my, bring her to faith in Jesus and make her my wife. How ignorant, even as a believing Christian pastor, I looked back on the prayers, how ignorant. And yet even there, how generous God was in blessing, like, wow, like amazing. So those are the kind of fundamental foundational prayers that really just kind of built my faith from the ground up. And it's upon those that then later on, uh, ministry and seminary and sort of a more robust theology would build upon them. But kind of crazy stuff. Drew Bakius is my guest on Progressive Spirit. Uh, He's the uh, author. He's the author of The Rise and Fall of Faith, A God to Godless Story for Christians and Atheists. And, And you've really just Describe something about the, the we might say the evangelical way uh, a mind of how it is a personal relationship that prayer is very serious and you look on your faith um, as signs in which uh, God uh, responds to your prayers and and what happens as I'm also understanding with evangelical Christians as this goes is that those like yourself who become what apostate right yeah. um you never really had faith to begin with. 
Isn't that the argument that's often used? It is. It absolutely is. So it's this idea of uh, perseverance of the saints. It's this idea of once saved, always saved. You know, it's these Calvinistic doctrines that don't always go in lockstep with evangelicalism, but oftentimes they do. And yeah, the assumption that's made is, well, anyone who truly believes has faith in Jesus, there's this transformational shift in them that is wrought by the Holy Spirit. He he comes, he indwells, indwells himself within you. God himself at the point of true saving faith comes in, indwells you, and completely changes you from the inside out. And once that change has been done, once you've literally become a new spiritual creature, once God has done that, he has promised in his word that that can never be undone, that he will hold you as his into glory. And once he starts a work, that cannot be undone. Once he redeems you, once he transforms you, once you've been saved, well, you can't be unsaved. And so then you take that and you look at someone like myself who no longer believes. Well, then clearly he never really believed to begin with. Clearly he was never truly a real Christian from the beginning. And this becomes a doorway where now everything you've ever done, taught, said, it all becomes questionable. And the fact that I eventually became, even as a full, fiery believer in the inerrant word of God, nonetheless interpreted that word of God from a more you know, progressive standpoint, now all of that's questionable. Oh, well, of course, all of your teaching was more progressive because you were never truly a Christian to begin with anyway. So, yeah, it's just everything's questioned from that point. Now, is there self-doubt involved in this, too? Uh, Did you look back on yourself and say, gosh, maybe I really was faking it? No, 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 not at all. I was sold out from the beginning. And and I was always, you know, I've always been a super transparent guy. Like, I I mean, yeah, certain, you know, in certain leadership situations, you know, you, you have to, you know, you have to be a leader. You have to hold your cards close. You, you know, you have to be able to, you know, be trusted with confidential information. So it's not like I was, you know, just this open, porous, you know, can't hold anything inside. But nonetheless, in in areas where, you know, in terms of who I was, in terms of how I presented myself, um, I've always been a wear my heart on my sleeve, what you see is what you get kind of guy, uh, no BS. You know, in my teaching, my Sunday morning, you know, from an evangelical perspective, Sunday morning is really, it's message-based. It's all about teaching the word of God on Sunday morning. And my teaching was always kind of in your face, no BS approach. Uh, it was, hey guys, this is what the Bible says and this is what we got to do. And we'd get kind of in the face. We'd talk about taboo issues. We'd talk about sex. We'd talk about all this stuff. And, uh, and very much so with myself as well. Um, what you see in terms of my faith is pretty much what you get. And, uh, and so I was never one to, yeah, no, my faith was real. It was genuine. Uh, yeah. Drew Bakius is my guest. He's the author of The Rise and Fall of Faith, the God-to-Godless story for Christians and atheists. I continue my conversation with Drew after the break. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. Stay with us. This is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Shuck. My guest is Drew Bakius. He's the president of the Clergy Project, an online community for religious leaders who no longer hold supernatural beliefs. He tells his story in his book, The Rise and Fall of Faith, a God-to-Godless story for Christians and atheists. And of course, your story is not alone. I mean, when actually people tell their stories, they they are very similar. For example, along you talk about the dark storm that was still kind of brooding. That that this doubt um, of um, of your faith was mm. was there present fairly early. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the full process was, I mean, in terms of, you know, specifically talking, <laughs> there may be dark, dark clouds brooding here and there throughout my life. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but in terms of, <laughs> in, in terms of, uh, you know, my deconversion from the faith, it was, it was a full two year process really started in the fall of 2010. And then two years later, over the course of 2012, I, you know, was transitioning out of ministry and then fall of 2012, I finally, cause I didn't want to be an atheist. I clung to my faith. And I think that stands as testament to the fact that it was real. It was genuine in the fact that like I worked so hard for so long to keep it intact. I held on to that thing to the very last day. And it was only after I left ministry and even that was sort of as a last ditch effort to try and rehole, you know, rejuvenize my faith. It was only after I left where I finally said two years later, you know, I just can't, I can't fight this thing anymore. I gotta let this go. And then I stood up and I was just like, all right, I'm an atheist. I am. There's nothing I can do. I can't fight it anymore. I am an atheist. But that was a long and, like you said, dark, stormy night. Because it's it's uh, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of uh, a torturous experience, right? So you begin with some uh, doubts about uh, biblical contradictions. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Is that are those some of the some of the first things that uh, crept into your uh, uh, edifice of faith and started to crack it? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, you know, from the evangelical mindset, where you know you're your faith, everything, it's all rooted in this idea of an inerrant Bible, of this idea that God is the true author of it behind the human authors or within the human authors. And since God's the one that's written it, and the Bible itself says that God cannot lie, therefore it all has to be 100% true. No imperfections. And so... You know, for, as an evangelical, you know, you, living in our contemporary world, you know, you're always coming across, you know, a study here, an article there, an archaeological find over over here, over this way. You come across these things, and they challenge the idea that, well, is the Bible really right? Is the Bible really imperfect? Is it really flawless? And you kind of have to take take a step back. And you evaluate the legitimacy of the claim. And as an evangelical, you're who has this is you can you can waffle on a lot of things. You can kind of hypothesize a lot of different ways. You can interpret the Bible with a lot of flexibility. But the one thing that has to be is it has to be inerrant. That's like the one thing you can't give up within evangelicalism. And so you take a stand back and you're like, well, how does this square? How do I make sense of this study or this finding? and not sacrifice biblical credibility. And oftentimes it's kind of like, well, gee, we, you know, sometimes you're able to kind of, you know, spin it one way or the other and be like, oh, well, obviously this study is best understood in this way, not as the author or as the scientist proposed. You know, good, done, deal, move forward. But then there's other ones where it's like, well, man, I, I honestly don't know what to do with this thing. Like, it, does, I don't know how to explain this this finding away from a, from an evangelical perspective. So for now, I'll set it to the side. I'll push it to the periphery and we'll come back to it later. Um, and I, and, and I would suggest all evangelicals do that regularly. And so of course I did that, you know, over years and years and years and it didn't really shake my faith. You just keep pushing it to the side and we'll deal with it later. Uh, Leslie Weatherhead, uh, he's, you know, he writes, you know, back in the fifties, I want to say he writes this book, the, the Christian agnostic, where he talks about how Christians have this mental box, you know, this box up in their minds and, and it's marked awaiting further light. And just anytime something like that comes across, comes across their purview, they throw it in this box awaiting further light. But then I came to the point in 2010, I suppose you'd say, where I go to, you know, open the box and throw another item of critique inside, you know, how I tend to liken it rather than this box in the attic that Leslie Weatherhead talks of, I liken it to a desk drawer and I've got all the things I'm comfortable with on my desktop. And I take in 2010, I open the, the, the bottom right hand desk drawer to throw in another article and all of a sudden the whole thing's jammed open and now it demands my attention and I don't know what to do with it all. 
And so I start pulling it all. There's just so much. I look down. There's just so much stuff jammed inside this desk drawer that I've been filing away for years and for a deck for a couple decades. And I'm like, wow, I can't, I can't keep pushing to the side. It now demands my attention. And so I start pulling it all up and putting it on the desktop of my mind and finally beginning to deal with it all. It challenges my faith, of course. And so I cry out to God. And the, the biggest the hardest thing the, 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 that pulled and tore against my faith wasn't the critiques themselves. I had learned to deal with them over the course of my entire life. It wasn't the critiques themselves. It was the fact that then when I cried out to God to help me finally sort through them, he couldn't. And, I, and then that's really what the next two years were. It was two years of me saying, God, help me deal with this. God, you seem to be silent. God, my faith is waning. God, you, you live within me. Your word tells me. The Bible tells me that you live within me. The Bible tells me that you're the one who is personally in control of the strength and level of my faith. And that all I have to do is just ask for you to rejuvenate it. And God, I am. God, I've been asking you to rejuvenate my faith for six months, for nine months, for a year, for a year and a half, for two years. And God, you're not doing it. God, why aren't you rejuvenating my faith? God, I'm begging you. God, I'm here. And yet he couldn't. He didn't. He wouldn't. And so over that time, my faith is just falling apart more and more and more. And honestly, it was kind of almost driving me crazy as I was trying to force something that I knew wasn't. And uh, that's basically the, you know, the gist of what happened. Drew so. Bacius, The Rise and Fall of Faith, A God to Godless Story for Christians and Atheists. And uh, apologists, of course, that's how they get their, their business, right? William Lane Craig are, are kind of there to help folks kind of shore up all of these questions. But they, they, even those folks didn't work for you after a <laughs> while. No, not at all. Uh, it was, you know, so the whole process kind of started in, you know, fall of 2010, where I just started facing this major faith crisis. And uh, so in 2011, in right away in January, I said, you know, it's a new year, man, I gotta, I gotta find a new tactic. <laughs> I gotta find a new way to like shore up my faith. Nothing's working. You know, at that point, it had probably only been about, you know, four months, but it was four months of like, continually feeling my faith erode, like weekly, if not at times daily for like three to four months. And so January of 2011 comes along. I'm like, God, I got it. This isn't working. <laughs> God, you're not rejuvenating my faith. What other tools might you, God, want to use to rejuvenate my faith since you're not doing it directly? And so I said, all right, well, I'm going to just start reading like crazy uh, things that maybe normally I wouldn't normally read because my normal routine was my normal philosophy was, well, just know the Bible, just know the Bible well, and just study the Bible well, and God will use the Bible <laughs> to keep your life and your faith the way it should be. And, you know, and so that's basically all my routine was, was just reading about the Bible, reading, you know, Bible background stuff. And so 2011 comes along, I'm like, all right, well, I need to set the Bible itself aside for a little while, or at least complement it. And so I start, you know, going back to you know, all my seminary readings on the apologists, like you said, William Lane Craig and, you know, all these guys and reading all these, you know, devotionals. And I wasn't, I kind of was not a big, big one for reading like, you know, Christian fluff or Christian, you know, self-help type books, you know, or, you know, really your typical, you know, kind of lighthearted devotional reading. As a preacher, I kind of referred to that stuff as, you know, cotton candy, you know, Christian cotton candy. And you don't need Christian cotton candy to just make you feel good. You need, you just need the Bible. But I started, man, I was desperate. I, so I was reading as much cotton candy fluff as I could find. I was reading <laughs> Max Licato. I was reading Phil Yancey. I was reading, you know, I was reading newer stuff like those guys. I was going back to the, the ages, you know, every day I was just soaking myself in, you know, the, uh, you know, Christian prayer books and revisiting the creeds and just all this stuff trying to just find any route, any anchor to help me. And well, 
none of, none of it helped. At the end of the day, it just became this long line of all these people who were just contradicting each other. And uh, none of them, you know, they all had their own perspective. None of them could agree on the answers. And it just, at the end of the day, what was me trying to seek out another tool, another means by, by the direction of God himself to try and shore up my faith. At the end of the day, it just showed to me how once again, yes, this is just a human invention and none of these humans can agree on what the best tactic is to increase your faith. And, and it just killed it even more. And the only ones engaged in this are, are you and God and God isn't saying much. So what about uh, yeah. your congregation, uh, your family, your wife? Were you able to yeah, speak? So, uh, how did that, how did that play out? Yeah. So, um, in the, the summer of 2011, uh, it just became clear and really even earlier, you know, late spring became clear that, you know what, this, I, I, I'm not cut out for pastoral ministry. Either this whole thing is a line of hooey and, you know, this is all fiction. All this God stuff is fiction. And if it is fiction, then this isn't what I want to devote the rest of my life to. Or maybe, hey, fingers still crossed, maybe God is still real and still alive. But if that's the case, well, I've clearly demonstrated that I have no uh, authority to lead in these matters. I have no ability to discern truth, uh, if that's the case. Either way, regardless of which of those two options it is, uh, either Christian ministry has no place in this world, or I have no place in Christian ministry, at least the version of it that believes in God. Uh, and so whatever it is, I need to step away from pastoral ministry, which meant I needed to start thinking about telling my wife. And so uh, we went for a long walk. I didn't go into a lot of details. You know, I was still wanting to believe again. And so I was still trying to cling to my faith. So the last thing I wanted to do was kill someone else's faith. Last thing I wanted to do was kill my wife's faith. And so, you know, I was very leery in how much I told her. You know, I just told her the bare basics. And uh, so, I, but I got her on the same page. And um, as far as the church goes, you know, I, I started during this time, I, I, I reached out. There was one pastor throughout all of this who throughout the entire process was aware. And we would, uh, he was a pastor from my first church. Uh, he and I were always close friends. And so we met every few months or so, and he was always really encouraging. But we're both busy guys. We can only meet so often. There was this other pastor's group that I kind of brought them into the loop uh, in March of 2011. But uh, that's a whole long story of itself. They were not helpful at all. Um, and so, yeah, I was just kind of on my own. The church, I... You know, the last thing I wanted to do was devastate their faith, just like I didn't want to devastate my wife's faith. And so I really just kind of tried to, you know, keep this as between me and God, not in a deceptive way, but in a, listen, my job as pastor is to protect their faith, not hurt it. And if they know what I'm going through, well, that's going to hurt their faith. And so I need to transition out in a way that doesn't hurt their faith and that leaves the church in the best possible way where they have a new pastor who can truly pick up where I've left off and care for their emo emotional and spiritual and congregational needs in a way that I clearly can't anymore. And so that's really was my, uh, my perspective throughout those years and really the perspective or throughout those months. And really that's the, the default perspective that I worked through throughout my entire transition out. Did it ever occur to you um, in this process to say, well, you know, maybe it's not so good just to have the church keep its faith. Maybe the individuals sitting in those pews are going through similar struggles just as the minister. And gosh, if I just shared what my doubts were, maybe that'd be a helpful thing. Man, if I had just been like John Shuck or Greta Vosper, you know, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, in retrospect, I mean, sitting where I sit now today, sitting where I sit now today, uh, I, if I could go back and do it again, oh man, I would love to take a route more along those lines. But where I was back then, again, I was still clinging to my own faith. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to do was hamper or hurt theirs. Um, you know, we, and it's interesting because 
the tone of our congregation. It was more progressive. So we, we tried to create within the tone of our congregation this, this atmosphere where we could regularly talk about issues that maybe you couldn't in other churches, issues that were taboo. We talked politics, some were on the right, some were on the left. We had open Democrats and open Republicans. Uh, Sunday morning sermons, our teaching time, we'd, at times we'd delve into political issues. We'd talk about an issue and we, you know, we'd bring up abortion and we'd say, okay, well, you can read the Bible and look at it, you know, from this perspective where, you know, it, it's kind of more supportive of the, you know, the, the, the Republican side of things. And, but you can also look at it from this perspective and kind of see ideas that are more sympathetic of the Democratic or the more left-leaning take on, on abortion. And we'd say, you know what, so let's, let's remove the hostility and let's just talk openly. And so we would do that. We would do that a lot. We, would, we were just beginning kind of in this process as I was going through this stuff. We were just beginning, you know, we kind of looked at depression and we said, you know what, depression and just emotional illness in general is something that is a tabooed issue in a lot of churches. So let's start talking about this. Let's get this out on the table and remove the 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 you know the 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 danger or the reluctance to talk about these things. What is it like to be a Christian and yet and trust in God and yet you still wrestle with depression? How does that work? So so within the context of that kind of a church community, man, it would have worked so well to also say, well, now let's talk about doubt. And actually, doubt itself, we talked regularly about doubt. We talked about doubt all the time. But we never really opened up the ability. It was all, We looked at it from the perspective of a healthy faith includes doubt. Because in pushing through the doubt, you will come up with a more robust faith on the other side. So we talked openly about doubt in the place that doubt serves within the life of faith, but we never felt the freedom to consider that maybe there isn't a God and maybe it's okay if some of us don't believe in him. That was too far. And it's because of our evangelical context. The Bible is the word of God. It is inerrant. That's the one thing you cannot question. And our evangelical congregation was true to that. And I think there are glass ceilings everywhere within liberal congregations, too. I mean, that's a pretty big step uh, to take, no matter – even if you are Greta Vosper or, or, or at a liberal <laughs> church. I mean, because that, that's still – I mean, still people will want to hold on to one thing, you know, well, God. Yeah. And so that's a that's, – and that's, that's a big – I mean, I certainly – when I asked that question, I wasn't – offering a critique. I was just kind of wondering if you'd thought about it because, um, it's just, it is. Yeah. Because it is, uh, because it it is right. I mean, I think about that all the time myself. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to make them feel bad, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's always there, that level of guilt as we, um, have these questions, uh, that you need to keep them to yourself because you don't want to, uh, mess up the people. Um, I, I really just have a couple of minutes left, but I want to. Uh, your yeah, book is yeah, called yeah, yeah. "The Rise and Fall of Faith: A God to Godless Story for Christians and Atheists." Drew Bakius is my guest. This is really a powerful story. And the, what do you want? Uh, two things. What do you want evangelical Christians or Christians, however you label it, to know about atheists? And what do you want atheists to know about evangelical Christians? Yeah, you know what? You could almost answer it. <laughs> The same for both questions, but maybe just with a little nuancing, you know, on, on each one. You know, I, I would just want Christians to be able to look at atheists without assuming the worst. Um, and atheists to look at Christians without assuming the worst. Uh, and to realize that atheists are not, you know, evil, wicked people without a moral compass or core. Um, they simply are individuals, atheists are simply individuals who have not, who are not currently convinced, uh, that a God or gods exist and that's it. And there's a lot of very good people who are not convinced by the evidence or lack thereof. Um, a lot of people that Christians, you know, evangelicals would have looked at as, ah, they claim to be Christians, but they're not really Christians. Would you look at them and say that they're evil just because they're, in your estimation, not really Christians? Well, same thing here. Are atheists, just because they don't believe a God exists, really evil? 
or are they simply somebody who has a different perspective on life than you do? And I would suggest that it's, it's the latter. Uh, and to, to atheists about Christians, you know, are they really stupid and unable to, unable to think rationally or realistic, you know, rationally or logically about issues? Are they really just so deluded that they can't even tie their own shoes? Or is it merely that they have been brought up or raised or, you know, embraced by a community with a very different fundamental way of looking at life. And they've just never, you know, never stepped beyond that. And, and there too, you know, we're speaking in generalities, some have, you know, I hear from a lot of former atheists uh, who are, who have now embraced Christianity. And those are interesting conversations as well. You know, so I guess all of it, it's just to take a step back and not automatically box people into what you think they have to be. Let's approach everyone from a perspective of letting them self-define, taking a moment to hear their stories and to not assume the worst and to simply enjoy the conversation learn something about themselves, learn something about ourselves, and learn something about the whole of humanity in the process. That's pretty good wisdom. Drew Bacius, The Rise and Fall of Faith, A God to Godless Story for Christians and Atheists is his book. Uh, you have a website? Yes. Uh, my personal website is drewbakius.com, just spelled out as my name is, D-R-E-W-B-E-K-I-U-S.com. Uh, try and get on there to do some blogging once in a while. And then also at uh, humanistcoach.com, one of my projects that I do, uh, you can reach me there as well. Drew, appreciate you being on. He's uh, Drew is currently also the president of uh, the Clergy Project, and so glad to have you with us today. Thank you for, for sharing your story, for your openness about that and being with me today. Thank you so much for having me on, John. Great work you're doing here at Progressive Spirit, and I really appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast, hear it on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear and listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review, please leave one. More reviews help the show get a wider audience. Thanks. If you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me uh, through my website, ProgressiveSpirit.net. You can comment on Facebook and you can retweet on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schock. Be well.